All right, we are in numbers. Hashtag in the wilderness, right? Numbers chapter six. Six and seven. You may have noticed we're kind of doing two at a time. We have been for the last few Wednesdays. I'm not trying to ram it in your heads, but um, it's just, it is what it is. And uh, I figure we got plenty of time to do it. We come to uh, the second longest chapter in the entire Bible tonight. I'm excited about that. <laughs> and I think you're going to enjoy it. So let's go to Numbers chapter 6. But as you're turning there, Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. God always prepares and always provides for his people in advance. He gave us before we were even yet born, he gave us everything pertaining to life and godliness, everything we would need for the journey, everything we would need for the wilderness. That's what God does. You've heard the old saying where God guides, he provides. Well, he provides ahead of time. He prepares us. He readies us. We may not think we're ready, but man, we come rolling into the wilderness and the difficulties and challenges. He's already been at work. He's never taken by surprise. He's always ready. And that's what he's doing right now. Before we find ourselves bamidbar in the wilderness, he's already done the packing and the preparation. And so in Numbers chapter 6, there's still plenty of packing and prep to do. we got to go all the way through about halfway into Numbers chapter 10. So this is all still pre-departure, and that's important to keep in mind. On Sunday, Numbers chapter 5, we talked about how to keep a clean camp. And we considered those things in preparation for the wilderness. And then last week, last Wednesday night, chapters 3 and 4, we talked about the counted and the called. And it's all preparation. Last week, we were looking at the priests and the Levites. You may recall this, the difference between priests and Levites, that all the priests were Levites, but not all the Levites were priests. That is the priesthood, the Aaronite priesthood. So it's broken down in the tribe of Levi. You've got the Aaronites, Aaron and his sons, the high priestly uh, clan within the tribe. And then you've got the Kohathites, and you have the Gershonites, and you have the Merorites. And we looked at those and considered them and thought about them. And then we made application to our calling as Christians. We talked about how the priests were called and had a priestly ministry, a priestly calling, and then we went to our calling. And I said to you that everybody has a calling. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a calling in Jesus Christ. Now, listen, I know, in fact, I've had a couple of conversations since last Wednesday about this. I know that it could seem real easy to sit in this chair and talk about calling and ministry. Well, that's easy for you, Rick. You're a pastor. You don't live in the real world like the rest of us. I've heard that. I love that one. I'm like, where do I live? You know, Middle Earth? Where am I, you know? Narnia? Equestria? With my little pony? Where, I mean, where do you think I live if not in the real world? But I get it. I understand. Hey, Rick's got a job, and part of the job is, is his calling and, and his pastoral ministry. It's just it's what he does, and we, we pay him to do that, so... Shut up and earn your keep, pastor. Well, here's the thing. 
We are all called. And it doesn't matter if you sit and teach in a church or if you drive a mail truck or if you work at a local laundry or if you happen to be a lawyer. It, it, we're all called. And we've gotten really confused about calling in America because we have calling cards, or we used to before iPhones. But we have a calling, and we think our calling is our job. And, and many of us, especially men, define ourselves based on our jobs. That's my calling. No, it's not. That's not your calling. Not if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Your calling is what he tells you it is. And it may be different for each one of us, but we each are called. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Remember, God knew you first, knew the choice that you would make to follow after him. He foreknew you. Therefore, knowing you were gonna follow him, he predestined you to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called. And these whom he called, he justified. And these whom he justified, he glorified. But the question remains, okay, that's fine, and I understand what you're saying, Rick, but, but how do you live a called life when you're not a Levite in Israel? Their calling was obvious. Gershonite, Merarite. Kohathite, Aaronite. We know what their calling is. What about the rest of the Israelites? What's their calling? And how can they know? And what if you're not a pastor in the church? Truly, truly, I say unto you, the answer is the same for Levite and Israelite, for pastor and parishioner. The answer is the same. And the answer to how you live a called life is simple. One word, devotion. Devotion. How do you live called? You devote your life to Jesus Christ. Wherever you are, whatever you do, it's a life of devotion. And what's beautiful is God offers for the non-priest in Israel the opportunity to step into a deeper devotion with him. And so tonight in chapter six, we go back to a special vow, a special vow Chapter 6, verse 1, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, he shall, nor shall he uh, drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes, which means raisins are right out. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of the vow of his separation, verse 5, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near to a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother or for his brother or for his sister when they die because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. Let's understand this vow. In fact, let's get our Hebrew terminology correct as we begin this. Special vow, we've seen the phrase before. Saw it back in Leviticus chapter 27, verse 2. The special vow in verse 2 of Leviticus 27 is called the difficult vow. Do you recall this? 
the difficult vowel, which is yapli. Difficult, special. Here it's translated special in the NASB. It's also translated wonderful. It's, it's like above and beyond. It's, it's very special. Yapli, the root word is pala, from which we get the name wonderful. Pele. Wonderful, as in the angel of the Lord. It's what the angel of the Lord said when Manoah asked his name. Who's Manoah? We'll talk about him in a few minutes. Manoah said, tell me your name, and Judges 13, verse 18 says, why do you ask my name, seeing it is Pele? It is wonderful. We see it in another place, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. His name shall be called Wonderful. So the wonderful name of Jesus, Pele, is that word, but it goes all the way back to Pala or Yapli, and it's special, something significant, something wonderful. This is a wonderful vow. It's also there in verse two called the vow of a Nazarite. The vow of a Nazarite. It's two words in the Hebrew, Nader Nazir. Nader Nazir. Now, Nazir, just for you Hebrew scholars, Nazir, when used all by itself, means prince. But when it's with nader, nader, nazir, the two words together, it always means the vow of the Nazarite, the special vow. It's the vow of the devoted or the separated one. And you may have noticed through the first eight verses how many times we saw the word separation. Like verse four, all the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that's produced by the grapevine. Well, the days of his separation, you could also translate all the days he's living as a Nazarite. Because the Nazarite vow, the vow of the Nazarite, is the vow of the devoted, the vow of the separated one. One set apart and separated for a special time or season of devotion. And then we see the word uh, dedicate also in verse 2. So a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, that is a separated one, to dedicate himself to the Lord. The word dedicate is actually the verb form of Nazir. So it's Hadzir, Nazir, prince, princely, special, set apart, and now to dedicate is to actually put that into action. So all that simply tells us that the Nazarite vow is a vow of separation, a vow of dedication, or as I come back to that singular word of the called, it's a vow of devotion. Someone comes along and says, you know what? I love the Lord. I'm not a priest, I'm not a Levite. I'm not connected in that way. I would just love to show more love. I would like to have a time where I just totally focus on him. We'll go on retreats, right? We'll go on to Christian camps. We'll have times where we get away. We'll have a fast. I'm gonna take a fast for a week. And, and it's to devote ourselves to him. Well, you could come to the priest. You could come to the Lord and, said, and say, I, I want to profess the Nazarite vow. I wanna live under this vow. And it could be a short term. I'm gonna be a Nazarite for a month. You take the Nazarite vow for the next month. Or it could be longer term. I'm gonna commit myself to the Nazarite vow for a year. This is gonna be the year of my devotion. Or in some cases, we saw the Nazarite vow was a lifer situation. We have three examples, we think, pretty sure three examples in the Bible of lifers. Their entire lives, they were Nazarites, Samson, Samson's one. He was a Nazarite from birth. In fact, Manoah, who I mentioned before, who asked the name of the angel of the Lord, is Samson's father. And I'll come back to that in a moment. 
So Samson was absolutely, definitely a Nazarite. The Lord called for him to be a Nazarite before he was even born. And probably the prophet Samuel. We think Samuel was probably a Nazarite as well. And thirdly, John the Baptist. So these three guys were lifers. Their whole lives, they were to live this lifestyle of separation and absolute devotion to the Lord. But the Nazarite vow has three specific rules. You've already heard them now. Rule number one, no grapes, raisins, or seeds. Verses three and four. So no whining or vining. Can't have anything to do with, with the vineyard. Don't even go there. God is so specific, he gets all the way down to the raisin and the seed. Don't even touch the seed. Have nothing to do with it. You know, the Lord will do this from time to time, not to be rigid, not to be legalistic, but to reinforce devotion. When he says to you, when he says to me, listen, don't even go there. Don't even go near that behavior. It's not because, you know, he's trying to make life harsh for us. It's because he knows us. He knows us all too well. And so what he wants to do here with the Nazarite vow, if you're going to make a vow of devotion, if you're going to do this, you need to be, number one, check this out, it's a clear-headed devotion. So no wine, no grapes, no raisins, not even the seeds. You need to have a clear-headed devotion. Because again, God knows us. He knows how easily we can break a vow. So if we're going to make a vow, he says, make it clear-headed. Amos chapter 2, verse 11. God in his disappointment, speaking through the prophet, says, I raised up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine. And you commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. Behold, God says, I am weighted down beneath you as a wagon is weighted down when it's filled with sheaves. What's he saying? When God's dedicated servants compromise their dedication, it weighs heavily on him. That's huge. God is so invested in you. He is so invested in me, in my heart, that when my heart compromises with the world, it weighs on him. It actually affects the God of the universe. That blows me away because you know what? Other people's sins don't always weigh on me. I'll just be honest with you. I can close the door. I can walk away from it. I can let it go. That's their problem, not mine. Not the Lord. If you're a devoted follower of Jesus Christ and you are compromising your walk, it weighs on the Father's heart. Isaiah 28, verse 7. He says, the priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They're confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgments. And a verse we've gone to a few times before, Proverbs 31, verse 4. It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. For they'll drink and forget what's decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. Now listen, if you think that we're getting into an anti-drinking message, you're going to miss the point. That's, that's a symptom of the deeper issue. The deeper issue is you want to devote yourself to God. God wants his devoted ones to be clear-headed lovers of the truth. 
Sharp in our thinking, sober-minded, keen-eyed, alert, awake followers, not weighted down by any of our choices. Ephesians 5, verse 15, Paul says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Look, we live in an evil time. We're heading into an evil wilderness. That's the way it is. So then do not be foolish, he says, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine. That's dissipation. I've shared this before. You know what dissipation is? It's that which dissipates. It's very simple. Dissipation speaks of, of kind of losing it, but, but the root word dissipates, it just disappears. There's no substance to it. There's no value to it. But he says, be filled with the Spirit. You know, the Spirit does not dissipate from your life. The Holy Spirit comes in to take residence. He fills, and He leads, and He comforts. I, I was thinking about this during worship. Wasn't worship comforting tonight? I mean, man, I kept sitting there thinking, this feels like a warm blanket of comfort. We have this big heavy blanket in our, in our room at home. It's a weighted blanket. Have you ever seen these things? I don't know where Cheryl got it. She's like, try this out. And she actually gave it to me when I was sick. This was several, uh, a few months ago. And I, I was sick and in bed. And, and you know, you know that feeling when you have like 12 blankets on top of you? And you just, you're just ensconced in blanket. And this weighted blanket is super heavy like that. That's how worship felt to me tonight. Just blanketed in the Lord, filled with the Spirit. And it was, I don't know, it was wonderful. Clear-headed devotion sharp-minded in our following after Jesus. And that's what he wanted. If you want to be a Nazarite, that's great. You want to be devoted, fantastic. Your days of devotion need to be clear-headed. Nazir also means, nader nazir, the, um, that, that phrase for the Nazarite. Nazir also means, by the way, untrimmed. And it speaks of an untrimmed vine. So for the Nazarite, a vine that you, you don't touch. But his hair was also to be untrimmed, right? That's the second thing to note. No shave and a haircut. Verses five and six. Why no shave? Why no haircut? Because if you're gonna be separated out and devoted to the Lord. Did you guys get that, by the way? My shave and a haircut, two bits. I, I, okay, because you just sat there. <laughs> what I needed was a little horn. No shave and a haircut. <laughs> that would have done it. If you're going to be separated out, why? Okay, so I understand the wine thing. I understand the drinking thing. But why, why not a shave and a haircut? Why do you just let the hair grow wild? Why? Because if you're devoted to the Lord, listen, you're going to look different. You're going to look different. The, at the time, in, in the days of Moses, the hair was likely trimmed. We know this just archaeologically. We know this historically. Coming out of Egypt, the trimming of the hair and everything, that was, that was more typical. The guys didn't just have long, wild hair. And so the Lord said, if you're going to be a Nazarite, if you're going to take the vow, do not trim the hair on your head. Why? Because not only is he calling for a clear-headed devotion, he is calling for a full-headed identification. A full-headed identification. That people would actually see you coming. Oh, he's a Nazarite. Oh, He's taken the vow. And they would know. So don't cut the hair. Paul is another one who apparently took a Nazarite vow. 
Not for his entire life, but for a short term at least. Acts chapter 18, verse 18 tells us in Cancrea, he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. Nazarite vow. Paul, in his mission, Paul, as a follower of Jesus Christ, was still acting on Jewish faith, which I think was a holy, wholly appropriate and devoted himself to the Lord for a time taking that Nazarite vow. Does your faith set you apart? Do people see you coming and go, oh, he's a Christian. Oh, she's a Christian. Jake was talking about this fact. I think he talked about it last night, talking to the students, about the idea of Christian has kind of waned a little bit in our culture and it's not thought of as, am I getting this right, Jake, that you were saying it's not thought of as intensely as like disciple? Like a disciple. Now, now you're talking about a Christian who really follows as opposed to just a Christian. Do you know that it, it speaks the other way that in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, it says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That it was actually a step up. Now, it was meant probably derogatorily at, at that time. But, wow, the disciples were seen as Christian, little Christ. Little Christ followers. Little mini Christs running around there. That it was a picture that, that the world saw that. That the people in Antioch saw that and started calling them what they intended to be a byword, but we, what we have taken with pride. We are Christians. We are disciples of Christ Jesus. And so it should make us different. Is your faith different? Does your faith reveal itself just out in the normal world? Is it conspicuous to people? Not obnoxious, not insufferable. <laughs> There's some of that too. But are grace and truth realized in you as they were in Jesus? John chapter 1 verse 17 tells us. Are we identifiable as Christians. You know, one of the saddest things to me in our culture and in this generation right now is how this generation is dealing with the word identity. Identity. You hear it in terms of gender identity. People say, I, I identify as this, I identify as that. And a person's identity can change with mood or emotion or feeling. They can identify as one thing one day and something else another day. And, and, and it's sad to me because it is so insecure. It's not stable. There's nothing solid in that. I, I want to I just call out to this generation and say, who are you? Well, I identify as this. Yeah, but will you tomorrow? Who are you? Are you confidently identifiable as a child of God through faith in Jesus? See, that's an unchanging, solid thing because it's based on him, not on me. John 1, verse 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Identifying completely with Jesus, full-headed identification. See, that's devotion. Devotion is clear-headed. I've made that choice to follow Jesus. And it is full-headed identification as sons and daughters of God. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, therefore come out from their midst and be separate. That is to say in the Hebrew, be like a Nazarite. Be separated. 
says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. I will welcome you. And then listen to what God says, 2 Corinthians 6, 18. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Our separation, our devotion unto him draws out our identity as children of God. Now, the most well-known Nazarite was the man they called sunlight, Shimshon, or we say Samson. Shimshon in the Hebrew, sunlight is what it means. Judges chapter 13 through 16, you may know the story. He was a powerful dude. Amazing. In chapter 13 of the book of Judges, the angel of the Lord comes to the wife of Manoah says, you're going to have a child. She was barren, by the way. This happens all the time in the scriptures. She's barren. You're going to have a child. And this child is to be a Nazarite. He will not drink wine. He will not cut his hair. All the days of his life, he will not go near a dead person. That's it. He's a Nazarite his whole life. Special calling. Well, Manoah comes home and his wife says, honey, I had an interesting visitor today. Now, I'm paraphrasing this whole thing, but you can read it. I had an interesting visitor today, and he came, and he told me we're going to bear a son, and he's going to be a Nazarite. And Manoah says, what was his name? Did you catch his name? I, I don't know. Well, if he comes back, come and get me. A few days later, Manoah's out in the field. Angel of the Lord returns. She goes running out. Manoah, he's here. He comes back. He meets up with the angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord repeats to him everything that he told his wife, that you're going to have a child. He's going to be a Nazarite. Manoah says, please tell me your name. He says, what do you ask my name for? Seeing it's Pele, not the soccer player. He's wonderful, wonderful. I believe that the angel of the Lord, as we've talked about many times, was a pre-incarnate visit of Jesus. And he told him, you're going to have this son. Well, they have this son, this amazing son, this powerful son. In Judges chapter 14, He's attacked by a young lion. He is so strong, Samson was, he tore it apart with his bare hands. And that's how the scriptures describe it. He tore the lion apart. I would just be tearing up the tundra getting out of there, you know? Well, there's another rule, by the way, speaking of tearing a young lion apart to its death, oops. Rule number three for the Nazarite is no dead things. You do not have anything to do with the dead. You don't touch the dead. You don't go near the dead. Verses 6 and 7 tell us that. Look at verse 9 of Numbers chapter 6. But if a man dies very suddenly beside him, that is beside the Nazarite, and he defiles his dedicated head, then he shall shave his head on the day when he becomes clean. He shall shave it on the seventh day. By the way, that's what a cleansed leper did. So to touch the dead was to make you as unclean as a leper. And then on the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the doorway of the tent of meeting. The priest shall offer one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering, and make atonement for him concerning his sin because of the dead person. Well, wait a minute. His sin because of the dead person? The guy dies next to him. That's his fault? Contact with sin is contact with sin, whether you intended it or not. It's still sin. Whether you realized it was sin or not, it's still sin. And so there needs to be an atonement, a covering. And so he would bring the two turtle doves or two young pigeons for the burnt offering and sin offering. Same thing that the leper did in the day of his cleansing. 
And that same day he shall consecrate his head and shall dedicate to the Lord his days as a Nazarite. He shall bring a male lamb a year old for a guilt offering, but the former days will be void because his separation was defiled. So understand this, that, that he's not to touch dead things. So not only are you to have a clear-headed devotion and a full-headed dedication but you're, or full-headed identification, but you're supposed to have a dead-headed separation. Stay away from the dead. Now apparently if this happened, if someone died near or a Nazarite had contact with the dead, they would go, they'd bring this offering, they would be made clean, and then they could restart the Nazarite vow but every day before that was null and void. The devotion was lost, didn't count, because he became unclean in the midst of his devotion. It's good news, he could reboot his vow from right there and start again, but dead contact rendered everything before that void. Boy, that, that teaches us something, doesn't it? That hanging out with the dead can really mess up devotion. Hanging with dead things, what do you mean? Luke chapter nine, verse 57 says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, well, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another, follow me. And he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And in what sounds like one of the most insensitive things Jesus ever said, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as you go, as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Let the dead bury their own dead. Well, that wasn't very nice. Hey, Jesus in principle is calling his followers to life. He's calling his followers away from dead things. John 17, three, Jesus prayed, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus prayed that. It's all about life where Jesus is concerned. Have nothing to do with dead things. Or as Paul put it, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. Don't go joining up with dead lifestyles. See, the gospel calls the dead to new life in Christ. It does not call the born again to the dead. We're not to go move into the cemeteries of this world. As I've said so many times, and I'm not, I'm not advocating avoidance of non-believers, far from it, because the gospel is for the non-believer. And it's our mission, our responsibility to take the gospel into the world and make disciples. You make disciples of people who are not disciples. You call people to devotion who are not devoted. But what I'm saying is this, don't get all wrapped up in their shrouds in their burial clothes. In your life, in my life, our lifestyle is to be devoted to Jesus, devoted to the life in Christ. Because devotion, man, devotion gives integrity to our witnessing. The more devoted I am with Christ, the more authentic I am when I'm calling someone to Christ. But if I'm living a lifestyle like the dead world, how honest really is that witness? If I look like everybody else, if I do what everybody else does, and I say, oh, and by the way, want to come to church with me? Why would they? Why would they want Jesus if my lifestyle is as dead as theirs? Jesus went on to say in Luke 9, 61, 
Another said to him, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You want to be devoted to Christ, you go forward. And you keep moving forward in Jesus. And you draw nearer and nearer to him in devotion. And you let the past be the past. And you don't go back to dead things. And you don't hang out with dead people. And you don't emulate dead lifestyles. You bring life to those who are dying. Samson kills a lion. Now he was attacked, so maybe we will give him credit. But the problem is that as you follow through Samson's life, he was not the model Nazarite. With these three areas. Judges chapter 14 tells us, just in, in one verse there, tells us he went down to the vineyards at Timnah. What are you doing in the vineyards, Shimshon? <laughs> Why are you there in the vineyards of the... You're not supposed to have anything to do with Grit Strike One. Then when the young lion attacked him, of course, he, he killed it. But upon his return, Samson scoops honey out of the dead carcass. In fact, he scoops up a bunch of it, takes some of it, and gets, gives it to his parents. And they eat it, and they don't even know they're eating honey out of a dead carcass, which would then be unclean. Samson eats it up. Have nothing to do with dead things. Strike two. By the way, there are all kinds of sweet tastes among dead things. In the dead world around us, there are things that at first smell good. There are things that might seem to taste good. But they don't last. And in the end, there's death. And then in Judges 16, <laughs> he got a buzz cut at Delilah's devious salon and spa. Strike three. He was in the vineyard. He ate right out of the carcass of a lion. And he had his hair cut. Violating all three aspects of his Nazarite vow. Instead of a life of consecration, Samson, and I, by the way, I'm, I'm a fan. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to dishonor Samson because he ended up doing some great things. He was a judge of Israel and he did some good things. But, but instead of a life of consecration, Samson compromises again and again and again. And how did Samson ultimately meet his end? If you know the story, you know. You might say, well, he avenged his people. Yes, he did in death. In death, death for himself, death for the Philistines. And I just have to pose the question, what if Samson had maintained his vow throughout? What if he had remained devoted, avoiding the vineyards, not eating out of the dead carcass, and certainly not giving up the secret of his strength, or so he thought, and allowing Delilah to have his hair cut off of his head? What if he had just maintained his vow? How would the story have looked? I wonder. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There's another Nazarite that I already mentioned to you who was devotedly different in the wilderness. And his life is worth considering as we think about this whole Nazarite vow. Turn in your Bibles over to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. A wilderness guy himself, and so appropriate for us in this season. 
John the Baptist, who lived the life, the uncompromising life of a Nazarite. John chapter 7, verse 24. Which says, when the messengers of John had left, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. So this is cool. I, I, I wonder what Jesus is going to say about me. You ever wonder what Jesus says about you? What he has to say about you? Listen to what he had to say about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Now, those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Oh, yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, Jesus says, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Greatest of all born of women. But then he adds this caveat. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Look around the room. You are in the room tonight with people, every one of you, greater than John the Baptist. How does that work? How, in, how, how can I be greater as least in the kingdom, and, and I, I know that would be easy if I said, how many of you feel like you're the least in the kingdom? Every hand goes up. But if I say, how many of you think you're greater than John the Baptist, there would be silence. How does this work? Why are we greater? I'll tell you why. Our devotion is different. Our devotion is different. John preached a baptism of repentance. We preach a baptism that signifies or symbolizes new birth. John paved the way for the first coming of Christ. We are preparing for the return of Jesus. John's message was one of austerity and repentance and judgment. Ours is a message of repentance to life and grace. John said, you better get your act together because Messiah is coming. We say, Messiah has come and wants to save you. We're in a completely different place. And by the way, we know something that John did not know. As the last of the Hebrew prophets, John did not know. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10 says, as to our salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Even John was uncertain about the Christ. So uncertain that as he sat in prison right before Jesus' description of him here in Luke chapter 7, you can go back and read about this. As he sat in prison, he wondered, was I wrong? I think he was the Christ. I saw the Spirit descend on him like a dove at his baptism. I was the one who said, I need to decrease and he must increase. But was it him? John in prison is still making inquiries. He didn't know for absolute, and so he sends his disciples off to go talk to Jesus. You know absolutely that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You're in a different place than John the Baptist was. 
Which is how you being least in the kingdom can yet be greater than John, who was of the previous dispensation. Let me put it to you this way. John was a devoted Nazarite. We are devoted to the Nazarene. And it makes us completely different. Well, back in Numbers chapter 6, continuing on, verse 13 says, Now this is the law of the Nazarite, the separated one. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall bring the offering to the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb a year old without defect for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb a year old without defect for a sin offering, and one ram without defect for a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened cakes, a fine flour mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil along with their grain offering and their drink offering. The only offering he doesn't make here is the guilt offering because he's not guilty of anything. He has fulfilled his vow. He has kept his devotion before the Lord. It says in verse 16, Then the priest shall present them before the Lord and shall offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. He shall offer the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord together with the basket of unleavened cakes. The priest shall Likewise offer its grain offering and drink offering. The Nazarite shall then, watch this, shave his dedicated head of hair at the doorway of the tent of meeting and take the dedicated hair of his head and put it on the fire which is under the sacrifice of peace offerings. So when he's all done with his vow, he doesn't even have the hair on his head to show for it. He has to shave his head. He has to go back to looking like he did before. So he's going to walk through the camp and no one's going to even know that he was a Nazarite once. No one be able to look at him and say, ah, Nazarite. Now he just looks like everybody else. That long hair, depending on how long he was a Nazarite, is now gone. No proof. But you know what? Devotion changes the heart. Not about the hair on our head. Devotion changes the heart. Verse 19, the priest shall take the ram's shoulder when it has been boiled in one unleavened cake of the basket and one unleavened wafer, unleavened wafer and shall put them in the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his dedicated hair. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. It is holy for the priest together with the breast offering by waving and the thigh offered by lifting up. And afterward, the Nazarite may drink wine. Party time. He can drink wine? Yeah, listen to this. It is only during the days of his devotion and dedication that he didn't drink. Which makes me wonder, how dedicated am I? What does my dedication look like? Am I seasonally devoted? Am I consecrated for a time, but then kind of back to life as we know it? Some were, some Nazarites, they did their thing for a time and then they just kind of went back to the normalcy. Or are you a lifer? Is your devotion lifelong? Ever on the increase in following after Jesus? This is the law of the Nazarite who vows his offering to the Lord according to his separation. In addition, note this, in addition to what else he can afford according to his vow, which he takes, so he shall do according to the law of his separation. What does that mean? This is now the start point of dedication. That is, listen, no drink, 
no haircut, no contact from the dead. That's where the dedication begins. On day one of being a Nazarite, he stops drinking. He stops cutting his hair, and he has no contact with the dead. But that's not the end result of the dedication. That's what he does through the dedication. That's the beginning of the dedication. But note that it says here in verse 21, in addition to what else he can afford, or literally in addition to what his hand can reach. Well, what does that mean? No drink, no haircut, no dead things, and then whatever else you want to do to show your devotion. It's not a limited devotion. Someone says, well, I read my Bible daily. What else can your hand reach? Well, I, I'm faithful to church. I attend all the time. Great. What else can your hand reach? Well, I'm involved in ministry. What else can your hand reach? had a conversation with a sister, I won't name her, but a sister recently who said, I'm just kind of feeling burned out. And my sister is involved in multiple ministries. Of course she feels burned out. Doing an awful lot. But maybe she, like you, would hear me say tonight, what else can you do? What else can you do? What else can you do? And that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, what else can your hand reach? It is not about adding to the busyness to prove ourselves devoted, it's about reaching for a deeper devotion to Jesus. And there is always more devotion. There's always more of my heart I can give to him. I love how it says in Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting, continually devoting. Mark that. Continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Do you realize those four things have nothing to do with busy work? All four of those things that mark, that, that epitomize the early church. This is how they met. This is what they did. Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. You know another way of putting that? They showed up. That's it. They just showed up. And by showing up, we're in fellowship. And breaking bread, oh, that's, that's going to bring the sweat to your brow, isn't it? And listening to the teaching of the word. Simple, praying. These are not the works of ministry to prove our devotion. These are what causes the heart to be devoted and to increase in devotion. Continual devotion to these things. That, that is key to a truly blessed life. And then verse 22, speaking of blessing, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons saying, thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace so they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel and I will bless them. It's that beautiful, simple, powerful Aaronite blessing. We sing it, we repeat it, I love it, and we'll look more closely at it on Sunday morning. Chapter 7. Now, Numbers chapter 7, next to Psalm 119, is the longest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 119 gets the record. It's, it's the longest in terms of number of verses. But Numbers chapter 7 clocks in at a full 89 verses. Must be important to be here 
and to be so long. Psalm 119 is all about the dedication of the word of God, devotion to the word of God. Psalm 119.11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Psalm 119.89, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So it's devotion to the word of God and, and it speaks of the word of God throughout all its many verses. How about Numbers 7? Second biggest, second longest in terms of verses. And Numbers chapter seven is one big fat 12 day long tally of giving. Giving. We've talked a lot about giving lately. Well, we're about to again. So get ready. Verse one. Now in the day that Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, he anointed it and consecrated it with all its furnishings and the altar and the utensils and he anointed them and consecrated them also. Tabernacle done. Verse 2, then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their father's households, made an offering. They were the leaders of the tribes. They were the ones who were over the numbered men. We met them in chapter 1. And when they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts and 12 oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders and an ox for each one, then they presented them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, accept these things from them that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting and you shall give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. By the way, that's how it works. To each man according to his service. We receive what we need for the ministry to which we've been called. So they didn't all get the same thing. They got what they needed to do what they were about to do. And he explains this. Moses, verse 6, took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service. It was what they needed to perform their service. Four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari according to their service under the direction of Itamar, the son of Aaron, the high priest. So that was according to their services, what they needed. But, verse 9, he did not give any to the sons of Kohat because theirs was the service of the holy objects which they carried on the shoulder. We can just see the Kohathites going, well, how come he got that gift? Why, why do they get those spiritual gifts? And I didn't get it. You're given what is needed for your specific service. Read about it in 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, and 14. Just read the whole thing right in there. To each one is given as the Spirit wills. It's all about that's that which is necessary for my ministry and my service. Same thing here. The leaders offered, verse 10, the dedication offering for the altar when it was anointed. So the leaders offered their offering before the altar. So they all, they're bringing the offering now. Verse 11, then the Lord said to Moses, let them present their offering. One leader each day for the dedication of the altar. And, and listen, you can almost hear God getting excited about this. Twelve leaders, twelve oxen, six carts, they all have their offering, they've prepared it, they're ready to bring it, and God says, oh, no, 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 let's not do this all at once. Let's do it over 12 days. One day at a time. Have them bring their offering. I remember being a kid in elementary school and finding out for the first time, had never heard of this thing before, Hanukkah. I'm like, I got Christmas Day. I get it all in one day. My Jewish friend, Mike Arlo, got to get 
presents for eight days. I'm like, how do I get in on this? I want that. That's great. A present every day or multiple presents every day, you know, depending. God says, let's not do this all at once. Twelve days. And so verse 12, the one who presented his offering on the first day was Nachshon, the son of Aminadab of the tribe of Judah. And it starts. Twelve days, a twelve-day processional of giving. And, of course, the first man was Nachshon of Judah. Remember what Judah means. Jake, praise. Praise. The first one out is praise, and it reminds me that praise always ought to lead the procession of our offerings. What do you mean? I mean, let your offering come from a heart of thanksgiving. Let your offering come first following worship, that, that, that we worship the Lord as we offer to the Lord. Second Corinthians, I'm going to read this to you real quick. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Paul says, I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You Bible students know, and we have to point this out, cheerful is hilarion in the Greek. God loves hilarious giving. And then he says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it's written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is, listen, producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God, that your giving is as much a part of your worship as singing songs, as lifting hands, that we give and it produces in us thanksgiving. It doesn't produce fear. It doesn't produce lack. It doesn't produce a messy budget. It produces thanksgiving. Praise. Praise goes first. The first one who presented his offering on the first day was Nachshon, son of Aminadab of the tribe of Judah. His offering, and follow this through, was one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering. One gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of Nachshon, the son of Aminadab. Isn't that wonderful? Keep going. On the second day, Netanel, the son of Zuar, leader of Issachar, presented an offering. He presented as his offering one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels and one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour, mixed with oil for a grain offering, and one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering. Wait a minute. That's the same thing. It's the exact same offering. And for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of Netanel, the son of Zur. It's just the same thing. You'd think the guy could be a little more original. Well, that's 
Netanel's offering, but on the third day it was Eliab, the son of Halan, leader of the sons of Zebulun. And if you read about his offering, exactly the same thing. Day three. Day four, it's Elitzer, son of Shadur, leader of the sons of Reuben. And his offering was the same thing. I mean, word for word, measure for measure, Ox for ox, lamb for lamb, ram for ram, same thing. Verse 36, on the fifth day it was Shalumiel, same offering. Verse 42, on the sixth day it was Eliasaph, son of Duel, leader of the sons of Gad, same offering. Verse 48, on the seventh day it was Elishama. By the way, that's the seventh day. And the rabbis point out that the first day, just by Jewish thinking, and it's very likely right here, that the first day would have been Sunday. And the seventh day would have been Shabbat. You're not supposed to work on Shabbat. Hauling these carts with all these animals and these offerings and bringing them up there and having to unload and everything. But it was giving. Sabbath does not void giving. They were to continue. They went through 12 straight days of this. So whether or not the seventh day really did fall exactly on Shabbat or Maybe it was on another day, and the first day of the giving was some other day during the week, but I'll tell you, it doesn't matter. You got 12 days of nonstop giving. Shabbat was going to fall somewhere in there, and they just kept it on, kept on bringing the offerings. Elishema does on the seventh day, and Gamaliel does on the eighth day, and on the ninth day, verse 60, Abidan, son of Gideoni, leader of the sons of Benjamin, brought his offering, same exact offering repeated throughout. On the tenth day, it was Ahiezer, in verse 66, on the 11th day, it was Pagiel, verse 72. On the 12th day, finally, Ahira, the son of Anon, leader of the sons of Naphtali, and his offering, verses 79, 80, 81, 82, and 83, exactly the same. So obviously, someone, you know, got the memo around, <laughs> and they all just brought the exact same offering, the exact same gifts listed out here through 83 verses. And then, verse 84, this was the dedication offering for the altar of the leaders of Israel when it was anointed. 12 silver dishes, 12 silver bowls, 12 gold pans. Each silver dish weighing 130 shekels, each bowl 70. All the silver of the utensils was 2,400 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The 12 gold pans full of incense weighing 10 shekels apiece, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. All the gold of the pans, 120 shekels. And all the bull, all the oxen for the burnt offering, 12 bulls, all the rams, 12, the male lambs, one-year-old with their grain offering, 12, the male goats for a sin offering, 12, and all the oxen for the sacrifice of peace offerings, 24 bulls, all the rams, 60, the male goats, 60, the male lambs, one-year-old, 60. This was the dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. And it's all the same. Every leader of each of these tribes gave the same gifts to the tabernacle exactly. And let me just make this point. That's the idea behind the tithe. That's the concept of tithing even in a church fellowship. In God's economy, all the giving is precisely proportional. 10% is 10%. Whether you have a little or a lot, it's still just 10%. Everybody is called to bring the same thing, whether you're an arborist or an air traffic controller or a bus driver or a broker or a college student or a criminologist or a dentist or a dancer. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what the income is. 
Now, the idea of 10%, I, I love it. I, I wish that America would go to a flat tax. 10% across the board. Just everybody gives 10%. The billionaire gives 10%. And the person who made $1,000 last year gives 10%. And it is completely fair across the board. That's the way God set it up. That's why he said, look, just bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, Malachi 3.10. So there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And again, you might say, man, Rick, we've been hitting tithing a lot lately. And now we hit another 88 verses. What's the point? <laughs> You're waiting. The Lord doesn't want us to miss this, which is why it's the second longest chapter in the Bible, why it's 88 verses on giving. God keeps a precise tally of everything that's given. He knows that. And he doesn't do it to shame the stingy. He does it to honor the giver. Gifts that are offered to God are of great honor and value to him. You've often, I'm sure, heard in, in teaching on giving, Lord doesn't need what you have. It's not about giving it. He doesn't need it. No, he doesn't need it, but he sure loves it when you bring it because he sees in it your devotion. He sees in it your faith. He recognizes as we give that we're saying, Lord, I trust you. I'm giving it to you, not because I think you need it, but because I trust you. I am thankful for your provision. And what we see here in this second longest chapter in the Bible is God takes notice of the tally of blessings. The people are blessed and they bring their blessing to the tabernacle. God takes notice. He says, don't do it in one day. Do it in 12. Let's enjoy this. And the sense we get is the Lord sitting back and watching them bring their offerings day after day as he's just smiling are you implying that God watches people give? I, I'm telling you directly God watches people give. Every time someone goes to a box in the back, God's watching. He is completely aware of that and it honors him as he honors giving. Jesus watched. Remember this? Mark 12, 41, he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. I love it. Jesus sat down to watch people give. Totally aware of it. I mean, he's not even, you know, kind of looking surreptitiously. He's just sitting there watching them give to the temple treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Nothing in terms of the amount, but it was everything. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. Understand what he just said. He didn't say she put in more than anyone else. He says she just put in more than everyone else. They all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she owned, all that she had to live on. She had two cents left, and rather than buy a stale crust of bread, she said, I'm going to trust the Lord. She didn't tithe, my friends. She gave entirely. In, in, entirely. She gave, she wasn't 10%, it was 100%. She didn't 10%, she 100%ed. And I bet 
And we don't hear anything else about her other than Jesus honors her by calling her out. I will bet you that that day and the following week and the rest of the days of her life that she was more blessed than anybody at the treasury. I didn't say richer. I didn't say she was more wealthy. But in her devotion to the Lord, I, I guarantee it because it's how God works. She knew the blessing of the Lord, which makes truly rich. Here's the thing to know about Numbers chapter 7, and we'll finish this up for tonight. It follows, get this, it follows immediately on the heels of number chapter 6. Isn't that cool? <laughs> 6 and then 7. Specifically, what I'm saying is Numbers chapter 7, this 88-verse tally of giving follows immediately on the heels of the Aaronite blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace so they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel and I will bless them. And implication, that was the first time then that Aaron would speak it. And as he spoke it, then suddenly the tally of giving begins. Number seven is the tally of blessing because the tally follows the blessing. The blessing comes first. That is, the blessing precedes the giving. We don't give to get blessed. We give because we've already been blessed. Because we're already blessed in the Lord. You might say, well, it's been really a tough year financially for me. I don't know how I'm, how I'm blessed. Do you know the Lord? Let's not get caught up in our blessing being material wealth. You are blessed in the Lord, therefore we give out of the blessing. The blessing comes first. And if you know that the Lord blesses and keeps you, if you know that he makes his face shine on you and is gracious to you, if you know he lifts up his countenance on you and gives you peace, that will compel all the devotion in the world. It's blessing first. And then, as we've seen, the 12 days of giving. Verse 89 ends the chapter now when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, so he spoke to him. Exodus 25, 22. God said to Moses, prior to this, there I will meet with you from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel and number 7 verse 89 promise fulfilled promise fulfilled God did exactly what he said he would do and here before their departure he expresses his devotion that is his devotion God's devotion he expresses to Moses and his people as he continues to keep his word. I'm going to meet you there. I'll be there for you. I'm going to see you through this wilderness. Now listen to me. How many times have we heard this phrase? The Lord spoke to Moses. Since we've been going through Torah, all the way back to Genesis. Now obviously the Lord didn't speak to Moses in Genesis. But the Lord spoke to Moses, picking up in Exodus, in the book of Exodus, the Lord spoke to Moses. That phrase is used 17 times. Then we moved into Leviticus. And Leviticus, which is the Lord, and the Lord spoke. I mean, it starts with that. And the Lord spoke 28 times in the book of Leviticus. And the Lord spoke to Moses. 
Check this out. In the book of Numbers, 46 times. It's like this massive crescendo. 17 times Exodus, 28 times Leviticus, 46 times he speaks in the book of Numbers. What's the implication? My friends, God spoke to Moses more in the wilderness than in any other place. The Midbar. In the wilderness is where he really ramps up. And the Lord spoke to Moses, and the Lord spoke to Moses, and the Lord spoke to Moses. Do you see the news reel on this? News reel. Man, that dates me. In the news this last week that Israeli archaeologists have discovered another 80 Dead Sea Scroll fragments, which is really cool. It's been 60 years plus since they discovered the first round or, or the last set of the first round that they, that they began to discover. That, well, they just unearthed more in the Cave of Horrors. That's cool. That's Indiana Jones right there. It's called the Cave of Horrors because they also discovered 40 skeletons in this cave. But there are 80 fragments of, of the books of Zechariah and Nahum. And, and of these scroll fragments, they're, they're in Greek. So what we would think of in terms of the Septuagint, they're the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And we think that they were buried there or hidden there in that cave during the Bar Kokhba revolt of, of about 132 to 136 A.D. They fled and they hid them there and then 40 Israelites would die in that cave. I'm, I'm just so impressed with this. God is still speaking in the wilderness. <laughs> He's still speaking in the wilderness. Bible says in Psalm 89, truth springs from the earth. But you know what? I'm not talking parchment. God still speaks in the wilderness. We say this all the time when, when we're in Israel. As a reminder, we don't worship stones and bones. We worship the living God. And the living God still speaks today, still speaks in the wilderness to his people right now. Jesus said in Luke, or John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And true devotion, which is for everybody to have, true devotion comes by hearing the spirit of Jesus in the wilderness. And Lord, we continue to listen. Help us to hear better. Tune our ears, tune our hearts to your truth, to your voice. That we would be familiar with you, Lord, devoted to you every step in this journey. Father, some of my brothers and sisters tonight are deeper in the wilderness than others. Some are down in the dark canyons and moving through rocky places. Some are dealing with difficulties that others don't even know. But you have called all of us to trust you in the wilderness, to devote ourselves to you in the desert of this world. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to hear so clearly the comfort of your spirit, the promise of your word. Father, help us to, to know the truth of all these things and be devoted to you in the truth. Bless, Father, this following after until you call us out, out of the wilderness and on home. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.